Let's open your copy of God's Word as I open mine to Galatians, the second chapter. And I would like to read beginning at verse 11 through the 21st verse. Let's briefly pray. Our Father, we are deeply grateful that you have given to us your own word, inerrant in the whole and in the part, and we pray that you will fill us with great joy, that as we come to this word, we see a redeemer, we see a savior, we see a justifier, we see one who secures his people for time and for eternity, we see the covenant of grace that is ordered in all things and sure, and we know that through the blood of Christ, we, your people, will make it all the way to heaven and all the way to the eternal state. How grateful we are that you have purchased us by your shed blood. And we ask that you will deepen our understanding of that great grace and mercy out of which we are to live our Christian lives. Do that for us, Father. Help us, those of us who perhaps have come thinking, well, it's just an ordinary thing to gather on a Sunday. May we see that it is special indeed, for the Holy Spirit takes his word and applies it deeply, deeply to our hearts. Hear our prayer, for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Galatians chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. This is the word of God. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose." Now we come to this great text tonight in which we find the very first time that Paul the Apostle uses the term justify in verse 16. I mean the very first time. It is the first time that Paul actually writes the word, pins the word, in one of his epistles. It's one of those great words that we need to understand, one of the grand themes apart from which we can't know joy in our Christian life, apart from which we really can't understand what it means that we are accepted by God through Christ. And so here, in verse 16 in particular, we have the heart of Galatians. For even though Galatians may deal with a number of themes, the primary theme with which it deals is justification by grace alone, through faith alone, through the work of Christ alone. 
But not only is it the heart of Galatians, it is at the heart of the church's faith. It is at the heart of the church's faith so much so that when this doctrine is obscured, all that the church teaches will be obscured and a church actually can get to the point that is no longer a true church of Jesus Christ. Churches have apostatized. They have gone their way as generations have forgotten this great teaching of justification by grace through faith alone. And it is one of those doctrines that throughout history needs so to be emphasized and so to be taught to the people of God because there is a Pharisee in every human heart and we want to contribute something to our own justification in the presence of God. We tend to forget this doctrine and we need to be reminded of it every day. We need to live out of the fullness of what it means to be justified by grace alone through what Christ has done on the cross. And if we fail to remember these things, then the church, the church will slip into awful heresy. We actually live in a day in which in evangelical churches, once again, this doctrine is being obscured in a variety of ways. And that's one of the reasons that I, as your pastor, am so keen always to find opportunity to bring this great teaching before you. And so it is the heart of Galatians. It is the heart of the church's faith. But it also is the heart of your Christian life. It is so essential, so fundamental, that if you do not get it, understand it, if you don't perceive it, then you will not be able to live the Christian life as you ought. You will always be confused. You'll feel as if God is condemning you. You will feel as if you're somehow not accepted by God. You will feel as if those efforts that you make to please God somehow just don't please Him after all because you don't realize that your effort is not meritorious after all. This is not what God wants of you. He wants you to live out of the fullness of what Christ has done for you. You are not doing anything to be accepted by Him or to merit His favor. As we come to this text then, we see several things. And the first thing I want you to note is conflict. We first see conflict. Now, the Christian life and the church's life and the church's history is filled with conflict. It's simply unavoidable. The whole of the Christian life is a battle. It is conflict. I was thinking that as we baptized Lou this morning, the conflict is really just beginning for this brother in Christ, as it does for all of us when we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. There is conflict in the Christian life, and there is conflict here between Paul and between Peter. You might remember what happened. It is as the apostle Peter is there in Antioch that certain men came from James and the Judaizing party has been putting pressure on these people evidently to understand a gospel which is no gospel, some false gospel in which works righteousness may be added. And so the apostle Peter has been living, has been living as a Christian ought to live, in complete fellowship as a Jewish Christian with Gentile Christians. He's been having table fellowship with them. As a matter of fact, we read uh, in this passage that uh, he was eating with the Gentiles, which is an imperfect tense in the Greek, which means that there was ongoing eating with the Gentiles. And yet, when those from James came, he was intimidated, and he began gradually to draw back and separate himself, again, an imperfect tense in the Greek. It was a gradual thing to separate himself from those with whom he had table fellowship. Table fellowship might here have been the Lord's Supper, quite frankly, coming together to take the Supper of the Lord. We don't know for sure. 
But this conflict arose because of Peter's compromise of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, there, there is an odd kind of forgetfulness here um, on several levels. First of all, there's an odd forgetfulness because they are forgetting what Jesus himself taught. Jesus taught in Matthew 15, and Peter would have known this, and the disciples would have remembered this. He taught that it's not what goes into a man that defiles, but what comes out of a man that defiles. It's not, uh, it's not that we fail to eat kosher foods that defiles a person. It's, what, it's what's found in the human heart that comes out that defiles a person, an odd forgetfulness. But it's also an odd forgetfulness on the part of Peter, who had been through this experience in the book of Acts, we read about it in chapters 10 and 11 of Acts, in which the Lord had let down, you will recall, this great sheet in which there were these animals that were unclean. And he was told three times by God to arise and eat. What God was telling him, of course, is that because of this great doctrine of justification, these things had been done away, and now Jew and Gentile were one. And after this, he is called to Cornelius' home, a Gentile who is justified by faith just as the Jew. And in chapter 11 of the book of Acts, the apostle Peter actually has to defend his doctrine of justification before Jewish Pharisees who also are believers but don't understand this doctrine of justification. So Peter's been all through this. It's something that he should know. It's something that he should have understood. Peter's prior conduct also, as we read in verse 12, of eating with the Gentiles seems to have been quickly forgotten. He was regularly eating with them. He understood that fellow Christians, whether Jew or Gentile, should be sitting together at the table. He's fearing peer pressure of some kind. I think most of us can relate to that. He was fearing the circumcision party, that party that was pressing circumcision and pressing Jewish mosaic uh, uh, laws, uh, saying that, yes, Paul's justification doctrine is okay, but it needed to be supplemented in a variety of ways. And so he's forgetting what Jesus taught. He's forgetting his prior experience with Cornelius, and he's forgetting his own prior conduct with his fellow Christians who themselves were Gentiles. He fears the peer pressure and Paul's public rebuke is the result. In verse 11, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. And then again in verse 14, we find the rebuke. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel there, because Barnabas and others joined with Paul, Peter, in this hypocrisy, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And there's a word that's used here, orthopadusen, that means walking straight. It's the only time the word is used here in the Greek New Testament. We call that a hapax legomenon, the only time that you find it, walking straight. And he says, When I found that you were not walking straight with the gospel that you were deviating from the path of the gospel, that rather than walking that straight path, you were walking like a drunk man, a man who was under the influence, under the influence in this case of the liquor of, of Judaism, under the influence of false teaching, no longer walking a straight path for the sake of Christ and his gospel. 
And so this is why he must rebuke Peter. The problem with Peter, the problem with Peter is essentially this. There is a massive denial of the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, through the work of Christ alone. Now you may say, where do you find that? How could that be? He's not eating with those Gentiles that he once ate with, but justification is about our acceptance with God. And so how was this a denial of justification? Well, it was a denial of justification because it's vertical before it's horizontal. Our acceptance by God through the work of Christ, our acceptance with Him on the basis of what Christ has done, that vertical relationship determines our horizontal relationships. Because he backed away from Gentile Christians and refused to share table fellowship with those Christians, he was saying, ultimately, God hasn't accepted them. We should accept warmly those who are accepted in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We should see all Christians as clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We should love them, care for them, accept them. And because he did not do this, there was fundamentally a denial of the acceptance of every believer, Jew and Gentile, on the basis of the work of Christ alone. So, there is conflict in this passage. And the second thing I want you to see is this great doctrine of justification by faith. Look at verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And so you see the Apostle Paul immediately says the real issue here is not simply that you're not eating with a Gentile. The real issue here is that you fail to understand the doctrine of justification by faith. Now what does this word justify mean? If we had time to range the scriptures, we could show you that it means, and I simply will tell you the result, to be pronounced or declared righteous. To be pronounced or declared righteous. It is the language of the law court. Just one example. For example, in the 8th chapter of the book of Romans, we read in verses 33 and 34 these monumental words. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Now, that's the language of the courtroom, bringing a charge. Who will bring any charge against God's elect? The answer is, it is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. And so the Apostle Paul in that passage and again, this could readily be multiplied, juxtaposes justification and condemnation. That justification is the answer to condemnation. Think of it this way. I always like to think of it this way. There someone is, perhaps yourself, in the courtroom in heaven above. And as you are there, and you think of it perhaps in terms of even an earthly court, there is, the, there is the judge who is, who is dressed and decked out in his, in his courtly robes. And you stand before him and you know within your heart and within your soul that you stand condemned. You know that you're a sinner. You know that you justly deserve his displeasure, that you're without hope save in his sovereign mercy. 
You know that you deserve his condemnation. And as the gavel is about to come down, you are expecting that gavel to come down with the sentence, guilty. You are guilty in my court of law. But to your utter surprise, the gavel comes down and you are declared not guilty. Indeed, says the judge, not only are you not guilty, but in my court of law, you are positively righteous, legally righteous. How can that be, you say? Because someone came and paid your debt for you. And that debt has been paid by Jesus Christ, our Lord. So that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And therefore, justification excludes moralistic self-striving for merit. You cannot work for it. You cannot earn it. You can do nothing to be accepted by God, not even a little bit. The Judaizers wanted to say, Paul's doctrine of grace is fine. It just needs to be supplemented in some way by the law of Moses. But no, when you do that, then you have set aside completely our acceptance with God, completely on the basis of what Christ has done for us. Justification, then, is a declaration in God's court of law that you are completely accepted legally in God's court on the basis of the righteousness of another. And how do you receive it? Verse 16 tells you, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Why faith? Well, I will tell you why faith. You are justified by faith, because faith, first of all, is God's gift. It is the gift of God laid in the lap of the soul by His divine sovereignty. You can't work faith up. You can't earn faith. You can't produce faith. Faith is God's gift to His people in order that they might receive this gift of the righteousness of Christ in justification. And also justification is by faith because faith receives. It is an instrument of reception. It is the hand that receives, but it adds nothing. It receives, but it contributes nothing. It receives, but it does no work of merit. It receives, but it adds not one thing. And so Paul never says, if you notice this in his epistles, Paul never says that we are justified on account of faith, as if faith could produce, as if faith could add, as if faith could actually could actually contribute to our justification. Paul never says that we are justified on account of faith. He says that we are justified through faith. No flesh is justified, says Paul in this passage, by obedience to works of the law. And we must beware of taking faith and turning faith into some kind of works righteousness rather than seeing that faith is a grace that is sheerly and completely receptive and that adds nothing. Now let me summarize for you in a few points Paul's doctrine of justification. If it's right to range Paul's epistles in order to find his doctrine of justification, which indeed it is, then we would, having ranged the epistles of Paul, summarize his doctrine of justification in these few points. First, justification is an act it is not a process. <clears throat> it is a once-for-all act, once-for-all declaration. When a person is, is declared justified, that person is declared justified once for all and for eternity. It is not a process to which you add by your works or your efforts 
It is an act declaring the sinner. The sinner, actually Paul says, declaring the ungodly to be righteous. And so it is legal. It is a forensic act. The second thing to note about justification in Paul is that there is no personal righteousness that can in any way contribute to our justification. Not one thing. The third thing to note is that Christ's righteousness, which means his perfect record, is the sole ground of your acceptance with God. Now understand this, believer, what a wonder it is. It is the sole ground of your acceptance by God that Christ's perfect record is imputed, credited to your account. For example, in the book of Philippians, the third chapter, we read in verse 9, and these verses could be readily multiplied, we read that the apostle says, to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. You see what he's saying then? There is a righteousness that is outside of me. Uh, Our great uh, theologians of the past called it an alien righteousness. It didn't originate in me. It's outside of me completely. And when I put my faith in Christ, this perfect righteousness of Christ, his perfect record, is imputed to my account. It is credited to my account. And that's what we need. In order that we might be accepted with a holy and a righteous God, this majestic, holy God of the universe, I need righteousness. I need a perfect record. And that perfect record comes when I put my faith in Jesus Christ. And then, as we think of how Paul, through his epistles, as we range his epistles, speaks of justification, he says to us, the sole instrument of reception is faith. It's not even love. It's no work that we do. The sole instrument of reception is forsaking everything and relying upon Christ. It is faith alone. Can't you see then why the doctrine of justification is the standing or falling doctrine, the standing or falling doctrine of the church, that without this the church becomes confused and works righteousness and, and, and merit rather than relying completely upon the merit of Jesus Christ? And so what was at stake at Antioch as Peter withdrew from table fellowship? What was at stake was the free grace of God. What was at stake was gratuitous acceptance with God through the work of Christ alone. What was at stake was justification by grace through faith. Now, people of God, let me again underscore to you that this has to be also the sole ground upon which you live your daily Christian life. That is to say, many of us think that because we have fallen into sin or we struggle with temptation or because we are not living as faithfully as we ought. Now, let me not hesitate to say the Bible calls us to faithful living, and Paul is going to address that in Galatians, that the Scriptures call us to holy living, but that holy living and that faithfulness can never, ever be the ground of your joy because it cannot be the ground of your acceptance.
And we become very confused as Christians sometimes in our Christian walk. And all we see are our failures. What does God see in his court of law? Not one failure. All we see is our unfaithfulness. What does God see in his court of law? Not one bit of unfaithfulness. What does he see when he sees you? In his court of law, judicially speaking, what does he see when he sees you? He sees perfection. He sees the perfect record of Christ. He sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. He sees you in the beauty of his son's own own righteousness. And he accepts you as he does his own son. And so I warn you, I warn myself, and we must always tell one another, we cannot base our Christian living upon the degree of our faithfulness because we will never be faithful enough the degree of our obedience, because you will never be obedient enough, the degree of your attempts to please God, because it will never, ever be enough. Your Christian life will be joyless if you live that way, and it is solely, solely on the basis of Christ that you are accepted, and you must live out of the fullness of that. Third thing to say about this text is that having said all of this about the the free acceptance that we have in Christ... Grace does not produce unholy living. Antinomianism. Now, this is always the charge in the history of the church. If you teach people that they are accepted completely on the basis of what Christ does, and you don't add something of your own, if you teach people that you are utterly and completely received on the basis of the perfect record of Jesus, if you teach this doctrine of imputed righteousness then people are going to say, well, I'm righteous in God's sight and so I can go live any old way that I please. That's simply not true. The accusation is there in the New Testament. Paul, for example, in Romans chapter 6, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? The accusation, if justification by grace is by grace, then men will grow careless in their Christian walk. Well, Paul is addressing that here in verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then the servant of sin? Is Christ the servant of sin because he justifies us completely on the basis of his righteousness, and yet our lives are sometimes not what we want them or they ought to be? Paul's answer to this is his classic meganoita. God forbid, the authorized version reads. Absolutely not. Certainly not, says Paul the Apostle. For if I rebuild what I tore down, verse 18, I prove myself to be a transgressor. If I return to my unbelieving life, I place myself among the transgressors. If I return to the old, then I will find no way of acceptance with God. No, no. The person who actually knows that he is received and accepted on the basis of the righteousness of Jesus Christ is the grateful soul. That person now wants to live for Jesus. He wants to respond to that love that saved him. He wants to live a godly life because Christ died for him. But he never bases his acceptance with God on his own personal obedience, but only on the obedience and righteousness of Christ. You see, he obeyed in your place that law that you broke. 
He paid completely the penalty that you owed, that infinite debt that was mounting and mounting and mounting, a truly infinite debt because our sin is against an infinitely holy God. Jesus paid it all, every bit of it. And when my heart really gets that, grasps that, understands that, then it doesn't lead me to antinomianism. It leads me to want to please the Lord. And so the answer to that dilemma, saved by grace, live as you please, the answer to that dilemma leads us to the fourth thing that I want to say from the text. We are taught here about the cross as the crux of Christian living. Verses 19 through 21. Let's read them again. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. What is Paul saying? Only by dying to the law can we live unto God. How did Paul die to the law in order that he might live for God? Verse 19, the second portion, tells us, I have been crucified with Christ. When Christ died, Paul says, the old Paul died as well. Let me paraphrase it this way. In Christ who died for me, I died to the law. The Father's condemnation of Christ in my place condemned the condemnation of the law. And God now treats me as righteous in His Son. And therefore, every day I live out of the reality of the gospel in my life. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, in your sanctification, in your ongoing growth in grace, in your ongoing progress in the Christian life, your sanctification is feeding upon your justification. Your living for Christ is feeding upon what Christ did for you once for all. And that is the answer that keeps you from discouragement in your daily failings as a Christian. Yes, I'm striving, to, I'm striving to honor the Lord. No, I can never in my life see that I've honored the Lord enough. Oh, oh, miserable, wretched man that I am. What keeps me from utter despair? What keeps me from utter despair indeed gives me joy in life is that as I, as a believer in Jesus, strive to honor the Lord, the basis of my acceptance is not there. The basis of my acceptance is in my justification freely through the grace of God in Christ Jesus and His imputed righteousness. And so it frees me up to continue to try to live for the Lord falteringly. I fail every day, but God doesn't cast me aside because of my failings. He receives me completely in the righteousness of His Son. I live by faith in the Son of God, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you believe that? He loved me, says Paul. Can you say that too? He loved me. That God demonstrated his own love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
that on the cross he showed his love for Paul and he showed his love for you, Christian, and he shows his love for me. He won't cast you aside. He won't say, I don't accept you anymore. He won't set you aside when you fail. He loved you and gave himself for you on the cross. And all of your acceptance, every bit of it, is found in the cross of Jesus and his shed blood. So now, says Paul, I have a totally new orientation on life that is based on the realization that God loves me, Christ loves me, that's based on the cross of Jesus Christ. I'm now free to live for Jesus because I know that God loves me and that love will always be there and he will never turn that love aside. Isn't that grand? That's Christian living. That's how we live the Christian life. That's where you find the strength to live the Christian life. That's how you continue to make progress in the Christian life, by basing your progress on that once-for-all act of justification and feeding upon it. Fifth thing, final thing. Christ's work is all or nothing. Christ's work is all or nothing. Verse 21 is all important. Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God, For if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. You see, if the Judaizers were right, that it's grace plus. Grace plus the law. Grace plus works. Grace plus. Then Christ died needlessly. Many a person with whom I've talked and I've said to them, when they have talked with me about their works, and yet they're talking at the same time about the cross. Why, do you, why did Christ die? Why did he go to the cross? All I hear are your works. If, if you could be saved by what you do, why did Christ die? Well, that's precisely what Paul is saying here in verse 21. He died for me, and it's all or nothing. I'm accepted all or nothing on the basis of what he did, not on the basis of what I do. As G.C. Burkauer somewhere said, if this were not true then God would be guilty of throwing himself away. Christ would have thrown himself away dying on the cross if I add something to my acceptance with God. Calvin put it beautifully, the death and passion of our Lord Jesus Christ should be at the center of our lives, for it is this which has delivered us from the pit of death. Amen. Amen. Now, when I think about this passages and passages like it, I always go back in my mind to Charles Simeon, that uh, great uh, 18th and early 19th century Anglican minister in Cambridge. He was a very, very sound and solid minister of the gospel. But when he was a young man, a student at Cambridge, he was a profligate. And he was far, far, far from the Lord. And as he came to Cambridge he found that it was a requirement. There was a note sent to him, and there was a requirement that at the next communion season, he was to show up for communion and take communion. It was a requirement if you were a student at Cambridge in those days. What, he said? Me? Come to communion? I can't, I'm not fit to come to communion. I don't, I, I'm, I'm a profligate in my life. And so he got some books, and he began to read, and he began to study, and he tried to improve himself so that he could come and take communion, and he was a complete and utter failure. Well, he said, next time, because it would be Easter when next 
he was required as a student to come to communion. Next time he said, I'll be better prepared. And so he bought this book by a Bishop Wilson. And in that book, as he was reading along one day, rather than finding works righteousness, he found free grace. And he found a passage that said that the Jews knew what they did when they transferred their sin to the head of their offering. Reflecting on those Old Testament passages where the one who would bring the offering would representatively place his hands upon the head of the sacrifice, showing that my sin was transferred to the sacrifice, and then that lamb would be led to the slaughter, showing that my sin was completely dealt with by atonement. He read that, and then he said, is that true? Is it true? Is it true that I can place my sin on the head of a perfect sacrifice? Is that true? And he believed in Jesus. And we are told in his biography that on Wednesday, the conviction that he knew the Lord and was justified by grace became strong. And then it was Holy Week On Monday, Thursday, it became even stronger. And then on Good Friday, it became even stronger. And then he was awakened by the church bells on Easter Sunday morning, and he said, Hallelujah, hallelujah, Christ is risen. And he was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Simeon said, All my sins were buried in my Redeemer's grave. Oh, my friends, let's live out of the fullness and reality of that truth All of my sins, every single last one of them, past, present, and future, have been buried in my Redeemer's grave. And so justification by grace alone, through faith alone, through the work of Christ alone, is the standing or falling article doctrine of the church. But it also is the standing or falling article of the soul. Your soul. You stand or fall eternally based upon whether you are justified through Christ or whether you think that somehow you are accepted by what you do. Well, which is it with you? What do you believe deep down in your heart? Do you believe that you're completely and utterly received and accepted by what Christ did on the cross when he shed his blood And by the imputation of his righteousness, or do you still believe that you have to produce something in order that you be accepted by God? Oh, by faith, put your trust in Jesus. For a man, a woman, a child can only be received in one way, and that is through the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And when you walk out of this room tonight, having sung these great hymns and having heard the exposition of this text, I want you to walk out and I want you to think, what a wonderful Savior I have. What a wonderful Savior I have that would justify me, the sinner. The ungodly, yes, that would receive me completely on the basis of what Christ did for me on the cross. What a wonderful Savior, what a wonderful Savior. And I want you to live out of that, people of God, all week, all month, all year, for the rest of your lives. (laughs) What a wonderful Savior we have. What a wonderful Savior. My joy is found in the loving provision made for me through Christ and his perfect record. May the Lord bless this brief exposition of his word.